Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm the sound inside Tony winner, Mary Louise Parker. No, it's me, Louis <laughs> And our special guest this week is the lovely Den Michelle. Hello, hello. I'm so happy to be here. I know. We haven't been on a podcast together in years. Well, no one's done anything together in years because of the <laughs> pandemic. <True. laughs> You've been paying attention, rem- yes. <laughs> I do have mm. fond memories of sharing a stage with you um, at the Ace Hotel in New Orleans when we did yes. the podcast festival with Jeffrey Masters, friend of the show. Mm-hmm. Yes, iconic trip. I- oh, so fun. And a little messy. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was... <laughs> New Orleans during Southern Decadence. Yes. So. All we did was understand the assignment. (laughs) Was this also the thing that Jake Shears was at? Yes. Yes. He is one of the great, nice people. Yes. And. Cool person. Very hot. Oh, yeah. There's that. Right. Mm -hmm. Very hot. Yeah. Nice and hot. What are you, Paul Newman? I don't like it. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) That's not in vogue anymore, but then you're like, actually it is. Actually. Yeah, if you're going to be hot, be a cunt. Right. No, if you went on the IMDb list of hot and nice, it's only like four names deep, you know. Like Cameron Diaz, that's it. I don't know. She even nice? I don't know. Maybe they took her off the list. She took herself off the list. Also, speaking of Cameron Diaz, did you see see this interview with her recently? No. So you know she is married to Benji Madden of Good Charlotte, who is twin brothers with Joel Madden. And it was just... Just some goofy headline where it was like, no, I'm not attracted to my brother's twin because they're so different. (laughs) (laughs) Liar. She's like, Nicole, don't come after me. Yeah. Please. (laughs) We all love twins. It's fine. Just be honest about it. True. But I guess at this point... They don't. You can tell them apart. I get. Yeah, I agree. You should be able to. It's rare that twins past. I feel like high school really sort of like age the exact same way, or you know, like work out the same way, or something. If like twins are like in their thirties, forties, and still look identical, like some gays, that's creepy. Yes, right. Because it's like, do you have the same diet regimen? What's going on here? Right. The same skincare routine. Make some choices. Yeah. 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 Let the road fork, if you will. Um, what's always interesting to me about Good Charlotte is at the time when we were like inundated with Good Charlotte as pop culture entities, they were kind of like obsessed with announcing their punkness or whatever, you know, because they were mm-hmm. in that Sub 41 era, all those people. And yet their music was like... Lifestyles of the rich and fame. It's like these like Beach Boys melodies. It's like yeah. girl, punk in what yeah, way? No. Yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. We call that pop. Yes, right. Punk. Yes. The pop punk era. Yes. No, it's so funny like revisiting the like punk or like some metal stuff from our high school era. And like for me, 
when I was first getting into um, white music, uh, I was like... <laughs> I see the tear in your eye. Yeah, go ahead. I was like, what is this, honey? Um, before I went full fallout boy. But now when you look back on it, you're like, it doesn't even seem that punk or like out of the norm as you thought it was in high school. Mm-hmm. You're just like... Oh, these are just melodies. Yeah. No, it's yeah. like sped up Backstreet yeah. Boys songs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were just wearing a lot of Hot Topic. Right. The, the, yes. What, what I can't get over at the time <laughs> is how exactly the mall all of those performers were. Just like, mm-hmm. wow, I, I remember exactly where I would buy that outfit or not yeah. buy that outfit. Yeah, I can't imagine you wearing that. No, like the mall was everything. That was all of pop culture, the mall. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hot Topic and Pacific Sunwear. Like, that was it. And I remember listening to that group, Taytu, which were, like, the the two Russian lesbians, if you remember. They had that one big song. And I, like, bought this pair of jeans that had a chain. And I thought, I was like, oh, now I'm punk. Yeah. And now my parents are, like, going to be pissed. And my parents took one look at me, rolled their eyes, and kept it moving. And by the way, there's still people that dress like they work at Pacific Sunwear. And I am talking about Mr. Keith Urban. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's what really turns Nicole on. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. You a shift manager at the Galleria? She's like, that's what I want. (laughs) She goes straight from the AMC (laughs) to the PAC sign. (laughs) Picks up an Auntie Anne's pretzel along the way. (laughs) Who doesn't want an Auntie Anne's pretzel? Wow. Nicole is obsessed with them all. I have been to the movies like, three times since her AMC commercial came out, Nicole Kidman's, and <laughs> I truly love that I get to watch that commercial before every movie for, like, the next year. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, by the way, it's also one of her least convincing performances, her sitting in a movie theater looking at a screen. I don't think she's ever done that. <laughs> no. <laughs> if you've not seen the advertisement we're talking about, like, Google Nicole Kidman attempts to watch a movie, and you'll see this AMC advertisement where she's like, like, okay, imagine looking up at a movie screen. Her head is, like, exactly straightforward, and her eyes are gently lifted. You have never watched a movie like that. <laughs> With a single soda besides her, ma'am, you're lying. <laughs> you know you have the jumbo popcorn. You know you've got all the candy. And a completely empty theater. Right. So it's, like, Kafka-esque. Yeah. Well, I mean... That I believe. If, that yeah. I believe. Either, it's her personal theater. Either that or she was watching Dear Evan Hansen, because then I believe she's the <laughs> well. only person in the theater. Oh, God. That's part of my keep it. We'll get to that later. As yeah. I was on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's just get the show started. We are going to talk about the Tony Awards, because Broadway is back. And we checked the numbers, and you yes. did not watch them. So we will explain what they were to you. <laughs> <laughs> did not Could watch. you find them? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and to keep the theme going, we have the wonderful Annalie Ashford here. The pep she brings. Get ready for it. Just a joy. Yes. Uh, and then we're going to talk about some of our favorite coming out stories, fictional and real life, uh, in celebration of Elvira's um Shocking coming out story. I say shocking. I wasn't that shocked. No, I wasn't that shocked. I saw the news that Elvira came out, and I was like, that seems appropriate. (laughs) Right. 
Well, also, by the way, <laughs> once upon a time, we'll get into this. You would be at like a gay bar, and absolutely the only thing playing on whatever TV they have was Elvira. Like, she's so connected mm-hmm. to the gay community. Like, before, even in a way, like, you would obsessively watch Madonna videos or something at a gay bar. Like, Elvira had a particular gay niche. So, anyway, good for her. We'll get into that. I hope we also get into some of our least favorite coming out stories. Let's vote some people out of the community today. <laughs> you know, you know we will, girl. Okay. I mean, good. you're like, that's part worry. of my key. Bit. Okay. <laughs> this isn't positive. Right. This isn't the Annalie Ashford no. so be positive. Okay. <laughs> but also before we get the show started, um Lewis, Den, I need you to walk off stage for a minute. I have to tell you that you've tested po- I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish oh I could successfully God. do what was done on the view with both of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to leave my Zoom screen. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you have not seen it, Anna Navarro and Sonny Hostin were asked to leave The View mid-show, walk off stage, and then you're just telling them that they are testing positive for COVID. It was maybe the most surreal thing I've ever seen on television. And Yeah. It was the same energy as like, you want a sweepstakes, but it's, you, <laughs> you have COVID. <laughs> <laughs> You're told to come to the principal's office. That's probably how it works in school now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You used to think if someone gets called to the principal's office, they're in trouble. Now it's like, Michael, please come to the principal's office. It's like, well, he's positive. Right. But like, that, that's still dangerous. Like, they have to walk through the hallways and they don't know what they're doing. I feel like somebody comes to the room and like puts a bag over their head. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be safe. I started thinking about those first moments in impeachment when they're leading Monica Lewinsky to the hotel room because I was just like, what's going on? What's happening? And then, you know, they told the world, basically, that these two women had tested positive for COVID, which turned out to be a false positive, Mm. which was its own thing. I thought that was one of the most epic moments on The View um, since... Since Meghan McCain and Joy almost came to fisticuffs. Yes. And also since the iconic split screen of 2007. Oh, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And well, it just goes to show you don't need Meghan McCain to have the view still be iconic, okay? Because no. COVID is also a virus and it can cause drama. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry Springer, for that final thought on the whole matter. <laughs> All right, we'll be back with more Keep It. September is National Voter Registration Month, and Vote Save America is working to raise $1.5 million through our No Off Years Fund. Donations will go to help voter registration efforts in places where reaching new voters will help make a difference in our ability to win next year and beyond, like Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, and more. We know that's a big goal, but the sooner we get new voters registered, the sooner organizers can start building relationships and expanding their work to reach every last voter. To chip in, head to votesaveamerica.com slash donate to learn more. So the 2019-2020 Tony Awards were Sunday night, confusingly airing half on Paramount Plus and half on CBS and of the 15 shows nominated only three are still running and Slave Play the most nominated non-musical in history walked away empty-handed so Broadway is back <laughs> let's get to the show I love saying Broadway is back just in 
regular conversation. Oh, right. Because they kept shouting it. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Getting my Starbucks order. <laughs> I will take a um, venti cold brew. And also, Broadway's back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the community. All the New York gays are saying it. I will say, Slave Play is in good company with Mean Girls, uh, Scottsboro Boys, the classic uh, you know, productions that ended up getting nothing and now in a way people will remember that forever so in a way it has a new mm-hmm. legacy classic black productions yes right like the scots yes. world boys and mean girls <laughs> <laughs> rapper actress tina fey you know <laughs> yeah uh i mean the main thing about slave play is that much like when they were shifting like the um Oscars, like the people who can nominate and vote for the Oscars, the nominating board is much younger and more diverse than the people who actually vote for the Toadies, which is weird. Right. Yeah, that makes no sense. You saw both Slave Play and The Inheritance, right, Ira? I did. I did. So you can officially weigh in on this. I'll just I'll talk well, about the politics momentarily, but you can tell us spiritually what, what deserved to win. Well, you know, The Inheritance was a bit like reading War and Peace. Mm, which we always do. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, quite long. Sometimes you <laughs> want to put the book down and go do something else. Girl, that play is so damn long. And it's two parts. Right. I was like, did Tom Stoppard write this? I rather enjoyed a bit of the first part of The Inheritance. I saw The Inheritance um, on the West End, um, as I do, because, you know, I travel for my theater. Right. Uh, <laughs> part two. We're not going to talk about that. Is <laughs> what we won't actually do. But oh, um, I don't know. For me, it's a powerful story. But you know, we've seen AIDS dramas before. Mm-hmm. You know, and for me, the inheritance specifically seemed engineered for a specific type of audience who likes a specific type of Broadway play that like will make them cry and remember, mm. etc. And then there's slave play, which you know. I enjoyed, Mm -hmm. but I can also get why it would be polarizing, you know? And I think the whole point of Slave Play 2 was like, you know, sort of like go against the system. And, you know, Jeremy O'Harris is very vocal about Mm -hmm. the system. Are we shocked? Not really. You can only trash talk the system and still win if you're Monique. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And even then, only once. Right. (laughs) Only once! And where's she been since, you know? Yeah. She's she's in a gulag, I believe. Yes. Oprah um, and Tyler Perry have um, blacklisted Jeremy O'Harris now, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, though, about the telecast itself, I selfishly, in some ways, appreciated the awards rollout being separated from the extravaganza that got on CBS because it really just felt like for people who really love seeing actors, everyone in Broadway come together, like you got like a clean telecast, like it was just like award after award after award. And I thought that was a lot of fun. It was baffling to me that they kept the actors out of the main telecast though. Like, don't people want to see that? Like the people they're familiar with win the awards. That was really confusing to me. And you want to see the fashion and you want to see all of your good awards show content. And it just, it did feel very streamlined, which I guess is like maybe nice for the time that we're in, but I don't know. I only watched a few minutes of it and then I was like, I think I'm going to do something else. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never be me watching award show after award show until the end of time. Something I do love about the Tonys, though, is that 
an actor will pop up like a supporting nomination or something and you're like that's where the fuck she's been Mm -hmm. Uh, namely jane alexander who lost to uh lois smith who became the oldest ever tony winner the only person ever to win a tony in her 90s which fucking rules for the inheritance amazing jane alexander was this woman who you would know if you watch like all the president's men and the great white hope she pops up in these supporting roles and she is a legend in that she's like many times Emmy nominated, many times Tony nominated, but her career doesn't really call attention to herself. She was never like a marquee star. And now at 81, she got this nomination for Grand Horizons. And there's an awesome profile of her in the Washington Post written by my pal Dan Zach that really gets into why, like just these actors we used to have who are like so earthy and you believe them. She's in this amazing movie that I talked about on Keep It Once called Testament, which is a TV movie basically. It feels like that, but it's about the apocalypse happening to a small town and you'd be shocked how COVID-like it feels. you got to watch this movie. She is awesome in it. And she says in this article, she goes, I have one dream left and it's to be the oldest Oscar winner ever. And she goes, so I can rub it in Tony Hopkins' face. And I was like, that's what I want. Ambition at 81 to win awards. So anyway, (laughs) it got me really back into Alexander Hive. Mm. And you know, I do adore Lois Smith, um, but I did not see the show with her. I saw it with Vanessa Redgrave. Which, God, can you believe she still is like up there acting? Vanessa Redgrave is just like a wizard at this point. Like it's crazy that we're just doing this performances. <laughs> yeah, she was. I mean, she was fantastic, and, and John Benjamin Hickey was amazing in it. I'm not going to drag the inheritance all the way down on this show, but I will say it was written by Matthew Lopez. And for me, mm-hmm. there are moments in the show where it dips into like current gay debates with mm. the younger people in the cast, and I don't know they they did feel as like authentically as debates that younger gay people would have. Also, the show is very white. Oh, it is very white. It's very white. In this economy. Matthew Lopez, you ain't white. So, what's tea? Yeah. (laughs) Tell us about this decision that you've made to write it in this way. Yeah. But the other thing that won everything was Moulin Rouge, (laughs) which is definitely a show that is on Broadway currently. (laughs) (laughs) I saw Moulin Rouge with our mutual friend, Matt Whitaker, this is one of those things about being like a fan of Broadway and like actors and knowing everything that they put on the fucking stage eight performances a week, right? Like you cannot deny that everyone is putting their heart into all of their work in like a show like that. Sure. But I don't think it's good. It's, I mean, honestly, every time it's described to me, the amount of songs that are like sandblasted into this show. Katy Perry's firework. By the way, I can buy, now that's what I call music for on my own time. I don't need to like go pay like a million dollars to go and watch this. But like, I do have to say the suspense of whether or not Aaron Tveit would actually walk away with the award when they could have feasibly nominated him, he was the only nominee, and then not given him the award based on the 60% of votes you need to actually claim the award was Mm -hmm. so stressful. And yet then when he won, I was like, oh, wait, this is so boring. Yeah. So anyway, it was like it was, he was in a vice, I felt. And that's my thing about these awards is just sort of like, I do think that the Tony uh, voting body should be shaken up because I'm like, Moulin Rouge, like for me, felt so Vegas. It's specifically engineered for tourists mm. coming to Broadway. And like, yes, you need a show like that to keep Broadway churning, to make the coins. But oh, you had so many speeches with people all night being like, imploring Broadway to, like, do something that represents anybody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just to see, like, every fucking award, like, in the musical category, like, to go to Moulin Rouge, it's just sort of like, you're not even trying, Mm -hmm. are you? You're not. 
it's, it felt so lazy. Yeah, I think, I mean, just what you mentioned earlier, the idea that the nominating body is so much more diverse than the people who actually get to vote on what wins is such a fascinating duality. And I have, I like have questions about that. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But Mulan Rouge is going to be a romp. I do plan on seeing it and I'm going to have a good time. And you will get thousands of pop songs that I think are still like, do they, do they change out songs and bring them in? Like, is Aaron Tveit singing like, good for you yet, you know? <laughs> I'm sure they'll do a fresh update, you know? And then also, um, I don't know, I didn't see A Christmas Carol, so... Oh yeah, that kept cleaning up. Uh, <laughs> and of course, our, our friend Diablo Cody won the, for the book for uh, Jagged Little Pill. Yeah. You know what remains jarring to me about that musical? Because we got to see a performance from Jagged Little Pill on the main telecast, is that for me, the power of Jagged Little Pill is that every song is so... Like, it's not just an angry album. It really is this gamut of emotions. There's some, like, songs about gratefulness or romance or, you know, obviously ironic is its own category of song. And yet they all belong to one woman. Like, it really feels, it's like one person showing you as many sides of their personality as they can. And then when you watch the show, and again, I've not seen the show, so this is not me judging the show. Again, my friend fucking wrote the show. I'm not here to diss the show. It's weird because they give the, the songs to everybody. And I know that's also like the point of like American Idiot and stuff too. But it's, it's interesting what's left of the album's appeal when you're not just hearing them all from one voice. Mm-hmm. Do I still like it as much? I can't really tell, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's not that Carol King musical, okay? <laughs> right, yeah, where Carol's like, I wrote these, yes. <laughs> and I will be singing them. <laughs> <laughs> I think it feels like a whole different experience, though, which is like, like what I like about that concept is that I feel like they just leaned into the idea that this is going to be completely different from the album. It's going to be a completely different experience for the listener. And it speaks to that whole idea that all of this is relatable, right? Which I Mm -hmm. think for Broadway, and I feel like Broadway camp abounds, like just leaning all the way in abounds. And so it's like, oh, it's a very different experience. We might like it more. We might like it less, but there's like something for everyone in that. And I think there's something really nice and exciting about that. So I was like kind of happy to just hear that it was still around and doing well. I had heard about it a few years ago. I don't know. It's exciting to me. It's an exciting show. I love the concept of like a classic nineties album is like now repurposed as a classic, like Broadway cast recording that like Mm -hmm. a different generation of like gays who might've been listening to like the album in the nineties Maybe they're listening to this, mm-hmm. like weird theater kids. Uh, and that's exciting for me. Th- like you mentioned American Idiot, you know, there's so many things like that, you know, where it's like they are now also like a Broadway album where you can hear it as this. Right. Yeah. Something that I did think was fascinating, though, in the main CBS telecast where we watched basically every living Broadway legend give a performance of one kind or another, mm-hmm. the beginning of it was dominated by shows and performances that are old pop songs repurposed for Broadway audiences. So like you had David Byrne doing Burning Down the House, you know, the famous Talking Heads song. Mm -hmm. And we had Moulin Rouge, so we had Lady Marmalade performed. And I have to say, it to me was not a glistening advertisement for what Broadway is now, just because it does feel like you're listening to, you know, your old iPod a lot of the time. Yeah, I get it. And, you know, I like David Byrne is like a genius. And I love uh, By the way, fucking love him. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it really does f- – that's part of my problem with Moulin Rouge, you know? I feel like the theater we grew up on, yeah. uh, you know, it's – um, you're hearing original compositions and songs and lyrics from, like, creators who have something to say, you know? That's why every fucking theater kid loves Sondheim, yeah, mm-hmm. you know? Even fucking, like, 
Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, <laughs> you know? Uh, and we did get a great version of uh, Move On from Ben Platt and Anika Nani Rose. Where are the new songs that are going to create like new memories on Broadway where you're like, this show, this new music like is pulling you in. Songs that like someone else will be singing on the Tonys like 20, 30 years from now that has become a new classic. Is it just going to be a pop song from now that's been repurposed into a musical, that doesn't feel like Broadway's doing anything exciting. Right. You know, at all. And I guess also, obviously, it's recovering from the pandemic, so it's not teeming with new ideas at the moment. So hopefully it will rebound. But it is just strange that, I, you know, like Firework is now a part of the Great American Songbook in this way. It's like, we, we should have to vote on that. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, you did it, Bonnie McKee. <laughs> I do stand her. I do stand Bonnie McKee. Of course. She's in that Cara Diaguardi community of like put upon songwriter who like had a moment where she could have been her own star and like maybe still has it in her, but she really is like a song. She's been treated as a songwriter and successfully. She's a, a fabulous songwriter, but yeah, very successful. She has a lovely home in the hills, which I famously went to for a party that she was not even in town for. Okay, which was which is for me is a new kind of like person with like money or friends in the industry ain't nobody ever having a party in my house when i'm not there absolutely the fuck not no it was like a birthday party for someone Mm -hmm. and she wasn't even in town i'm like no you can't have my house to have a party what is this people are weird right no that whoopi goldberg thing songwriters are weird i don't want anyone in my house yeah (laughs) i don't want a man (laughs) i don't want a fox (laughs) i don't want them in a box (laughs) wow I do not like green eggs and ham. A and children's book about people taking over your house for parties. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we'd be remiss not to mention the performance, the only performance people are talking about, Jennifer Holliday. Oh, yes. my gosh. Yes, yes. Also, like, she remains one of a kind. It's strange because she really is just known for that song mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Deserved Tony winner. I think maybe the agreed upon best musical acting Tony ever. But God, if you're going to be associated with one song, make it that one. Because every time she performs it, you have to like hold on to the wall. And then there have been several versions over the years that have been fascinating in different ways. Do you remember on an American Idol finale when she performed it with Jessica Sanchez, who I believe, yes. here's as I remember it, Jessica Sanchez was about two foot four. Mm-hmm. I remember Jessica Sanchez and her <laughs> and her single that went nowhere featuring Neo. And we ain't even on Earth tonight. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that I don't remember. Yeah, wow. <laughs> but the- it came out the same summer as Ariana Grande's first single, um, "The Way," with Mac Miller, "The Way." And oh, wow. you can you can see who won that battle. I got it. I got <laughs> that, it. Yeah. <laughs> but during this performance, Jessica Sanchez and Jennifer Holiday perform. And Jennifer Holiday came out as like a surprise guest. Jessica Sanchez suddenly shrank. She became like a Fisher Price little person <laughs> next to Jennifer Holiday, who grew to the size of eleven foot seven during this performance. The way her jaw moves alone, as the notes sort of like yes. like slosh around in her mouth and then like tumble on out like boulders. So shocking. And Jessica Sanchez was, I believe, eaten by Jennifer <laughs> Holliday. She was devoured. So mm. we, that's a dead, eaten pop star. She said, feel my soul. Now I'm going to eat your soul. Yeah, see? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's exactly why it went nowhere. I remember that performance and I just was like, this was maybe a bad idea for poor Jessica. <laughs> I will say that off of my little pun I made, um, people should listen to her debut album, Feel My Soul, because mm. Maurice White from Earth, Wind & Fire produced that album. It's great R&B music, mm. you know? But yeah, I feel like we all know Jennifer Holiday from the one song she's pulled out to award shows to perform now. I'm sure she's probably like, hey, I got a discography. Yeah. Let me sing something else. And they're like, absolutely not. Earth, Wind & Fire, by the way, is a band that like everybody knows every one of their songs, but they're treated sort of as like, I don't know, wedding music or something yeah. now when they are like the like definitive dance music maybe ever. Like they, they need a, a renaissance in a way. I have their album Rays um, from 81 like in heavy rotation on my like disco playlist. It has Let's Groove on it. Oh, um, fuck yeah. Which obviously, but like... The rest of the songs, you listen to it and you're like, this is such like great early 80s like funk disco music. Mm -hmm. We need to go beyond the singles of Earth, Wind & Fire because they're definitely not wedding music. Yeah, right. Like no. that's like you'll hear it at horse meat disco music. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> another album, from, I've brought up this album before, another album from that era that we, uh, Never Too Much by Luther Vandross. Come on, mm. got a great album. Yes. I think that's 83. No, it's a little earlier than that. But anyway, yeah. around the same time. <laughs> no, I mean, that is that is one of my favorite things to do to like uh, artists that we liked from that era to visit their albums with the major single and listen to the other songs or listen to the album that we've never heard of. Because I'm like, the same way that we will listen to you know, like a new Beyonce album, right? And then mm -hmm. you'll just hear Formation. But you know the other songs because it's streaming and we're listening and we're seeing them perform. We have like no regular knowledge of like the non-single cuts from like so many of those classic R&B albums, but they're all fucking good. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Master Jam by Ruf uh, Shaka Khan. I mean, all those songs. Yeah. And you, you only hear those on like deep, serious radio now. Diana Ross, <laughs> Eaten Alive, the entire album, Chef's Kiss. Mm. And that's what we think about the Toadies. <laughs> <laughs> when we're back, Annalie Ashford will join us because Broadway's back. Oh, right. Broadway's back, baby. Keep It is brought to you by Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof, what a life I've had. Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge Prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, these prompts were created in collaboration with GLAAD, so they are by the people, for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted it. <laughs> Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest. Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover. The shirtless one? You just turned to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah. Or broke the fourth wall. <laughs> You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when. It feels affirming when others, blank. I connect to my community by. I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. I'm going to say, whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal, when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include, my chosen family is the best at and gender euphoria looks like. 
Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. Our guest today can do it all. Network comedies, premium cable dramas, Broadway musicals. She can steal a scene in any of them. You can currently catch her as Paula Jones on Impeachment, American Crime Story, and starring as Gina on CBS's Be Positive. Please welcome Annalie Ashford. Hello! That was the sweetest intro ever. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Annalie, I was talking to uh, the others before you arrived that you have kind of like the exact median speaking voice for a Broadway actress. Like if you had to ask me what a Broadway actress sounds like in conversation, I'd be like, go to Annalie Ashford. That's like the exact <laughs> voice you're supposed to have. <laughs> you know, try to keep it bright and pingy and right in yeah. the mask. <laughs> pingy. Oh my God. Brilliant. Wow. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's all about resonance. Mm. So you are playing Miss Paula Jones in Impeachment. First, let's talk about the hair. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm so lucky. One day I said to the hair department, I was like, you guys, do I have more wigs than everybody else? And they said, yes. Yes, you do. Um, you know, Paula Jones, during this moment of American history, part of sort of the tragedy of her narrative is that she was ruthlessly made fun of by the media, mostly for how she looked and how she sounded. And because she was so brutally made fun of about her looks, she not only, I think, was trying to look the best she could, but also she was being forced by the people that were in her inner circle and some of the Republican operatives that were in her corner, specifically Susan Carpenter McMillan, played by the brilliant Judith Light, pushed her to get a series of makeovers. So I had braces. I had a prosthetic nose because at, at a certain point in the, in the story, she gets a nose job that was paid for. Um, but most of all, she had multiple hairstyles and they were very dramatically nineties. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved my wigs. They were real good. No, I have to say I, having watched I mean, it's so much fun watching all these like legends. You just mentioned Judith light, obviously Sarah Paulson. We have you involved. This story to me still feels like it was not long ago where it was the only news story, where it was the only thing I would ever hear about. You know, a part of me still thinks I'm going to turn on Jay Leno right now when he's making these jokes still. Like, you know, it's like implanted in my brain. What do you hope people know about this show so that they can get past the weight of what this story once was and actually tune in and sort of be entertained by it? What's so special and sort of brilliant about the American Crime Story series is that it forces us to take stock in the way that we responded and reflected on whatever moment of American history it's exploring. So in this instance, I really think it helps us acknowledge that the women in this story didn't have agency at that time. They didn't have ownership over their narrative, especially Monica Lewinsky, because she was you know, ordered to keep quiet. That was part of the deal. In the case of Paula Jones and Linda Tripp, Linda Tripp couldn't really talk about her perspective. And Paula Jones was being manipulated and I think prodded by the people in her inner circle. And also from a media perspective, we were just so unjustly hard on specifically the women. And so their narrative kind of got lost. So I think it will really surprise people. What will surprise people most is, is I think the motives of these women, the reality and the day-to-day of these women and how this moment in history was really 
I think for these three women specifically, and also for Hillary Clinton, like what a moment of trauma for them. You know, this is probably something that's going to be really uncomfortable for them to have to revisit right now because it was in their life of therapy. I'm sure it's like an era of PTSD. You know, how could it not have been? They were so mercilessly brutalized publicly. And I think we all just at that time, were like, oh, this is what you do. We just laugh at these women and go, oh, they're crazy. You know, and I hopefully feel like we wouldn't do that now. But unfortunately, you know, I always say Monica Lewinsky was the first person bullied on the internet. And we seem to think we'd be better to her now, but I think she'd be just as bullied now as she was then. And that's sort of the lesson. She'd be bullied, but she would have stands too to bully other people. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Her own beehive. Now she'd have more agency over her story. There's an incredible episode coming up that Beanie Feldstein is just brilliant. And it's the 12 hour day that the Ken Starr investigation brought her up into a hotel room. It's the day she found out that Linda Tripp had betrayed her. And the fact that that happened is just unfathomable that these men would take this woman into a room and just question her for hours and hours and hours and sort of make her feel like she couldn't leave without a lawyer. I hope that that wouldn't happen today, but I don't know. And then, you know, the other part of it is like, we didn't have social media back then. So now with social media, people have an outlet and they have a platform, but that also means that a lot of people have the power of the pen who who really shouldn't, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's it's just sort of like combo platter that we're constantly navigating right now that I, man, don't you wonder what it would have been like now? Who knows? Yeah. First of all, I have to tell you, I feel like I'm talking to Paula Jones, like in, like in my head, you're like imprint is Paula Jones. Like you just (laughs) play her so so beautifully and perfectly and with so much compassion. One of the things that has really struck me about this is that like when this was happening, I was like 10 years old. So my actual understanding of the nuances of it are so like was so limited at the time. So in some ways, it feels like I'm re-experiencing it in a completely different way. And I guess I'm wondering like how your understanding of the situation has changed so much getting to interact with it in this way as an adult versus how you may have experienced it at that time as a news piece. Yeah, you know, like you, I was similar age and I just saw the events of this moment really through the guise and the lens of um, late night comedy shows. So I also just remember so clearly a sketch on Jay Leno about Paula Jones coming out of her trailer and with this like really grotesque prosthetic nose. And just, you know, I always remember to the narrative about her being this sort of trailer trash woman of sin, which is not what she was. The other thing that's been so surprising to me in my research and as we've explored this story for the last couple of years is that it is so larger than life. And Paula specifically is larger than life. You know, it was a really fine line to walk, you know, making sure that she wasn't a caricature and making sure that I still gave her energy and essence without doing an impression of her because she still really, she needed to feel grounded and and really real. But the events and the people of this story, if you wrote them and you, if this was fiction, we'd all be like, this is too much. This is crazy. That would never happen in real life. Um, so I revisiting it, I, man, am I shocked and amazed, but I also have such great empathy for these women in a way that not only, you know, our current sort of social stance on the patriarchy and awareness of the mountain of the patriarchy that we're climbing, but we are so far from reaching the top of the mountain that, you know, sort of theme. And then 
also an acknowledgement of how horrible we were to these women. It's been a really like uncomfortable reckoning of the way that I can just examine how I just kind of went along with what everybody said. Oh, these people are crazy. These women are crazy. You know, we just sometimes go along with sort of what everybody else is saying in the, you know, it's group think. There's a lot of group think that happened during this time and it's still happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting seeing you in this role and then also having just seen you on The Good Fight playing like this other type of woman, <laughs> which I mean, I, I love when like some of my favorite Broadway people pop up in The Good Fight. Like how fantastic was it like being on a TV show, but also being surrounded by like the people from the community you came from? Oh, it's always the best. You know, there's nothing better too than being in a New York TV set because there's usually some magical Broadway folk hanging around. Mm-hmm. And then especially the good fight, it's like a festival. <laughs> I'm obsessed with Christine Bransky and then Audra McDonald. Mm-hmm. When I see Audra McDonald's name, they're in all capitals in my brain. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> I love that she was basically like the host of the Tonys. I was like... Who else? Right. Who else to bring it back? <laughs> she's so dreamy and she's so organic and the best. And she just put everybody at ease. She walked out and we were like, ah, oh, it's a sigh of relief. You know, she's just the best. She's a genius. Okay. On that note, you have to describe what it was like to be at the kind of weirdo Tony's this year. I mean, for one thing, it really felt like all the pillars of the community showed up. Like for one, like everyone was excited to be there. I mean, you're rising to these ranks. If I think of Broadway, like Annalie Ashford's in the first 20 names I think of, you know? So what's it like just to be around all those people? Or, I mean, is it still a relief to get to be together in person? Are you sick of any of these people by now? I'm sure you see all all these people all the time in some respect. When I walked in for rehearsal, I had realized I hadn't been in a theater in 18 months and I walked in and it's the Winter Garden. I mean, the Winter Garden is so beautiful and special in so many ways. There's still a bathtub in the dressing room that Barbara Streisand supposedly had for Funny Girl. And I was like, oh my God, it's Barbara Streisand's bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I walked in and I immediately like, I had to like go hide for five minutes and cry. I just was like so overwhelmed by the tragedy that our community has experienced. You know, I've been getting so lucky to work in TV and film and and that's an industry that really has been working for the last year plus. And I don't really think the world understands how compromised and how tragic this has been for how long this has been for the theater community and how many people we lost to COVID and other things. That in memoriam was really long. And there's a reason it's because so many people died. You know, I I said that to some people here in LA, when I came back, I was like sort of saying how overwhelmed I was by the emotion of it. And I sort of had to explain to people like, People didn't really understand how many people were lost to COVID in the theater community because so many people got it in those early days. Danny Burstein was in the hospital fighting for his life in March, texting my husband and I and being like, I love you guys. I really hope I make it through this, you know? (laughs) Then we lost, you know, Rebecca Luker. That was one of the most exciting moments that night when Danny Burstein won. You know, John Lithgow said seven-time nominee and we all jumped to our feet before he Mm -hmm. even said Danny. You know, that and then... um, when I sat down for rehearsal, I sat down next to Robin DeJesus and Lynn Manuel came over and gave us a hug. And we all just sat there. I was like, you guys, I'm so sorry. I can't see, stop crying. I came out on the stage for rehearsal to just practice saying my little lines for presenting. I started crying. It just was overwhelming. Like my dresser helped 
alter my, um, my outfit for the night and seeing her, we all cried. My husband and my dresser, Christina, who's dressing Andre Shields right now in Hadestown, we cried because her and her husband have been out of a job for 18 months. He's a, on a crew right now. My friend, who's a cello player, she lost her job at Frozen, which they thought would come back, which anyways, I could just go on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I cannot overstate the trauma that that community has experienced. You know, a lot of people have found a way to go back to work in some respect or another, but like theater has really, really been traumatized in a way that's going to take a long time to come back. So on that note, everybody go see a show. <laughs> <laughs> I, love that. I love that people had their masks on during the show. Um, I'm currently working on a show now with Jeffrey Richmond, who's married to John Hickey. Um, just, just talking about like people being vaccinated and people having their masks on during the show. And it feels like the safest thing to do to go see a show mm-hmm. because you're in a mask. People are vaccinated feel safer than like going to a movie. Yeah, it right. is. It is. It's amazing to have, you know, it was cool to be in New York for like 24 hours. I only got to go for 24 hours. Um, but it was amazing to walk up to a restaurant and be asked for your vaccination card. There's, I felt like it was amazing. I thought that was fabulous. There's just like, that's the world we're living in and that's what's up and you just do it and move on. And so I think it's exciting. I think it's going to be really helpful for New York and New York getting its feet, you know, back and getting tourism back. But uh, yeah, it was, I felt super safe. And also I sat behind Gina Rivera, which was amazing. (laughs) You know, I like got to experience Jennifer holidays singing. And I am telling you, and, Mm. and John sat behind me and we all were just having this sort of collective communal experience and that is what theater is and all of our hearts were there and we you were right we were safe it felt like the safest place in the world to be i feel like you turn around in your chair and just like cheetah rivera has her leg over her head or something <laughs> oh my god yes block <laughs> <laughs> was on the other side of me you know we did wicked together oh my god they're like 12 years ago on broadway um and we're good old friends and we kept looking at each other just like, all right, is this happening? What else is going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> it special. It was amazing. Ugh, it was crazy. Incredible. It feels to me like when a TV actor or a movie actor goes to Broadway, they have a lot to learn. It's a whole different projection process. They're listening to live feedback all the time. When a Broadway actor ends up on television, are you just containing your gifts? Are you? Do you feel like you're doing anything at all? Like, does it feel like you're exerting yourself at all, or is it tiring in a different way? It's so funny. Are you containing your gifts? <laughs> <laughs> I get that all the time, so I'm just asking you. Yeah, the best thing I've ever heard. You know, it's so interesting. It's a, it's a tone. You know, I've I've had a hard time explaining it over the years. You know, especially when I teach and like do master classes, they're like, "What is the difference? How do I practice being on to you know doing work for camera?" And I always say like. All of the fundamentals, the basics of the craft are the same. You know, what do I want in the scene? How am I going to get it? What's my obstacle? What's the relationship with the character? All the Stanislavski, Udo Hagen mm. greats, they're all in play <laughs> in, uh, in all the mediums. But what's different is tone. The magic of the camera is it can kind of see behind your eyes. Mm-hmm. And on stage, the audience can feel what's behind your eyes, but you have to figure out how to show that to them physically sometimes. I feel like I've really, the way I've been kind of acknowledging it and figuring it out, especially in crime story too, there's a there's an element of camp and crime story occasionally. Mm-hmm. But to make sure you're still grounded and you're still in the world, you have to just really kind of lean into tone. Mm-hmm. Back to start rehearsal for Be Positive for this week's episode. And that's a totally different tone. It's a little bit broader. It feels a little bit more similar to being on stage. But there are times where I'll be, I'll be like, hey, how close is this shot? 
you know, I've noticed, I feel so cool. I feel like Mariska Hargitay. I remember when I was was doing Kiki Boots, I got to do a guest star on SVU and Mariska is the best human in the universe. And I remember her being so well-versed on the camera. She asked them what lens they were using. I mean, from take to take, and she could adjust. It's like turning a dial, you know, and you just Mm. get practice and turning that dial and it's a tone. So that's sort of kind of the way that I'm able to explain it now. And it feels a little bit, I feel like I've just recently, I've been like, Oh, it's tone. That's a good way to explain it. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here before you go. You mentioned like the Chicago production of wicked that you were in, in like 2005, 2006. And I want you to know, how formative that production was for me because I went to Loyola Chicago for undergrad and that production uh, hit Chicago between freshman uh, and sophomore year when like I was a theater major and what my friends and I literally did was take the train downtown every day and enter the lottery and I think I saw that production like eight or nine times. It's amazing. Oh, that makes my heart so happy. And it had so many incredible um, Chicago actors. Mm -hmm. I always loved that about the Chicago production. Like I got to do it with Rondi Reed for a long time, which Mm -hmm. was, you know, she's like a Chicago legend and also a legend all over the place. But I always just thought it, I thought it was special that it had roots to Chicago too. Oh my God. I love that. That is so so sweet and magical. (laughs) Yeah. the, The most maybe magical, like, theater almost Broadway-ish moment for me because I was doing stage management in school as well. I scammed the stage manager at the um, stage door uh, to let me come one night and watch the show from um, where they were calling the show. That's so. the best I've ever heard. That's amazing. And kudos to that stage manager. I don't know who it was at the time because we had a couple, but mm. that's good peeps, good people. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, what a pleasure. Yes, thank you. What a treat, you guys. Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. In her memoir, Yours Cruelly, Elvira, what a lovely title. It's so cheeky. Uh, Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, comes out of the closet and writes about her relationship with her long-term partner, Teresa T. Wearson. Love the nickname. Uh, in honor of the 70-year-old icon's exit from the closet, we thought we'd take a look at our favorite coming-out stories. Fictional. IRL, and maybe some of our least favorite ones, too, because that's what we do here. Right. And somebody (laughs) has to lose. Every time. Always. Uh, Den, as our guest, why don't you go first? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, 
I have a, can I say a couple? This summer, I was really, really in love with Tommy Dorfman's coming out as a trans woman. And the reason why I really loved that, first of all, the conversation was written up in Time Magazine by um, dear friend and fabulous writer, Tori Peters. But also, she noted that she'd been living, sort of privately identifying and living as a woman for a whole year. And she didn't even really see this as a coming out. She sort of was like, it's almost like I'm just peeling back another layer and showing a layer of myself to the world, but it's not, like, I don't feel like there's really been a change or a switch exactly. I really identified with that, that sort of way of thinking about it. So that was really fun. And also just the photos were gorgeous. Um, And then a really recent one that just made a lot of sense to me was when Mae Whitman came out. I'm a huge fan of her. She's an actress on Good Girls. I first saw her on Parenthood years ago. You say Parenthood years ago, like that was, like it's from the 80s. Right, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) To me, it feels like it was the 80s, but it's actually like maybe 10 years ago, like not that long ago. (laughs) Parenthood, Thursdays after 30-something. Mae Whitman stays working, though. That's my favorite thing. She just stays working. She's always so Somewhere. I just was like, this makes sense. This is on brand. I feel like I've seen you for years. It's nice to know. So yeah, those are two recent ones that I'm really into. Hmm. Tommy Dorfman, I'm forgetting to be in awe of what Tommy Dorfman has become just as a cultural entity. Mm-hmm. This is somebody we would just see at Akbar. Yes. Like I just, I still think of like, oh, t- oh yeah, Tommy Dorfman lives down the street. Like I agree. Like, I, I can't, I can't associate Tommy Dorfman with any amount of like grandeur because it's just somebody you would talk about whatever Janet Jackson song was playing at that time. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the beauty of coming out. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Me not giving a shit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> IDGAF. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Uh, What about you, Lewis? God, good question. I think an interesting answer is Cynthia Nixon Mm. because she's always been, I mean, one, of course, among the definitive supporting actress Emmy winners in one of the greatest roles ever that I still feel like is underestimated when people talk about the show. I think the depth of Miranda is fabulous. So I was very invested when she uh, came out as queer an activist alongside her uh, wife and just this different thing she has said about being queer. For instance, at one point she made a statement that was sort of misconstrued where she talked about how for her coming out and, and being queer was a choice in that Mm. it was a decision she had to make. People sort of took it to mean, Oh, gay people are making it up. You know, like, oh, you you Mm -hmm. choose to be gay, whatever. You want attention or whatever the fucking insane things people think. And she goes, why does it matter whether or not I chose it? Like, that I thought was a brilliant point. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is something we keep having to say to justify to, I guess, straight people that we're, like, Mm -hmm. legitimate human beings, that we're not here, like fooling them or whatever and i thought Mm -hmm. i had never thought of it that way before and uh, i think it just speaks to how she's kind of brilliant anyway she obviously ran for governor lots of wonderful things have happened to her um in the time since then and now she's of course in the sex in the city reboot where she better fucking slay so i'm that's what i'm looking forward to i'm loving the hair her hair in the photos Mm -hmm. yes she looks i think she looks the best she's ever loved i'm so here for it i'm so ready for that reboot um call me basic all you want i had pumpkin spice latte this morning i'm here for it (laughs) well you know at a certain point when you're a white woman who comes out as queer you turn it to cherry jones (laughs) right (laughs) it's just part of it (laughs) (laughs) she's got her eye on sarah paulson (laughs) (laughs) 
we should say something quickly about Willie Garson, who surprisingly left yes. Oh, yes. last week, who played Stanford on Sex and the City, and is unfortunately living proof that you can be straight and slay a gay role, because guys, mm-hmm. no one was thinking that was a straight man. Sorry. No one. <laughs> no yeah. one. You know what? Straight men should be able to play gay roles. Gay people should be able to play straight roles. Which Billy Eichner says. Oh, that's for his right. New movie Bros. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, which I do love that you're gonna get like Miss Lawrence and T. S. Madison. Uh, you know, like Icon. playing straight roles in a studio comedy. Oh, so right. that's exciting. It's reverse coming out story. It's coming in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl Sandberg's come in. Yeah, <laughs> the sequel. <laughs> what about you, Ira? I would say that before I get back into the celebrityness of it, you know, like fictional coming out stories you know i feel like we have been inundated recently you know with like the love simons of the world and stuff but i think Mm -hmm. that like honestly i love the quaintness of um the coming out stories on like shows we used to watch Mm -hmm. when we were younger like i still to this day think of like jack coming out on dawson's creek Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know and like that kiss that was on television like they felt like events um, and, you know, I think that's that push and pull now with um, the queer youth, you know, who are like, um, they've been raised on the internet. And, you know, like you can be more progressive. And this, the idea that, like, you know, like the industry isn't as progressive, uh, you know, and this, I, like, this sort of like knowledge that only a few years ago when we were in high school was it still like impossible to get a coming out story, impossible for even celebrities to be out in the way that they are now mm-hmm. you know i think about when mark harris talked about that um issue of entertainment weekly that they did that was like gay hollywood like it was getting dragged on twitter by people being like some of these people aren't even gay on here you know you put like nathan lane uh, in lion king you know um like you put like timon and pumbaa on there you know and you like don't have other celebrities on here um as out but it's like People were not out then. Yeah, right. They mm-hmm. really weren't. And that's why I feel like so many celebrities coming out stories are just so interesting because a lot of them couldn't come out because of their careers, you know? Or if they were out, you know, like I think Mark said that like some of them, the ones who even were out, it was like their publicists or whatever were like, yeah, but we're not having you talk about being out like on the cover of Entertainment Weekly. No, you know, I, right. I, no I, I can't stop thinking about the, the people who were out like years and years ago, like how unbelievably radical that was. I mean, I get, mm-hmm. something I never forget is like when I came out, I, I'm from like a smallish Chicago suburb. I still, this was like 2003. And I feel like this is a common experience still, but it's something like I basically had to explain the concept of being gay to my parents. Like you just, mm. they weren't around gay people. Like it, they kind of had heard of it on television, it felt like to me. And yeah. so for someone like Rupert Everett to be out or, um, you know, Sal Mineo or like these old actors or. Um, come on, Sal Mineo. Fuck. Oh, come on. Sal Mineo. He's so good in. Um, Exodus, a movie that is otherwise terrible, and I blame you, Eva Marie Saint, who I usually love. Anyway. No, I, I love Sal Minio, and I feel like I cried once years ago, like, reading about how he died, and I was like... Stabbed to death in West Hollywood. I, so insane. I know. Yeah. I'm like, we always talk about James Dean's oh. death. Let's talk about Sal Minio's death. Right. No, he's like, the, he's literally the third most discussed death from Rebel Without a Cause. Like, James and Natalie do win. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe Whoa. death has a design. Go on with that film. Oh, I see. Yeah, with that film. Okay, I'm just saying it's not cute. It's really horrible. <laughs> it's it's like the original Poltergeist. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh god. Movie oh, died the horribly. Stories. Oh, <laughs> crazy. Yeah. It's interesting to talk about coming out stories you like because a part of me almost begrudges how late it took certain people. Like now, mm-hmm. I think of Anderson Cooper as a pretty like visible and chic gay presence. But then I remember for years being like, why doesn't he come out? And being frustrated with that. And so I can't tell if I've totally recovered from that, if I totally love that he finally got there or whatever, but he did. Mm-hmm. So it's okay, ultimately. This is part of being a gay person who's obsessed with pop culture, what you deal with. Like, how much do I love these people? Like, am I on their yeah. team? Are they my friend? Anyway, it's, a part of the, <laughs> it's part of the delusion of familiarity that comes along with this kind of obsession. Oh, yes. Mm. Oh, yes. We have that conversation every day about Demi Lovato. Right. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's so interesting about what you said, though, about, you know, like, because, you know, like, I'm from Milwaukee. Uh, and like a week came out like around the same time, but the idea of like coming out to and like explaining what gay is to your parents before you even know what gay is yourself. Correct. Mm-hmm. Like you're stumbling you're into like, it too. You're like, here I am in the outfit of gay. I don't know. Yeah. I was born in it. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I like guys. Yeah. You don't even know what that even means until like you get to college or like you start dating other men. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is interesting. And we're still also from that generation of like coming out in high school just wasn't a thing. For me, like my best friend in mm. high school had come out, and he was part of in my Jesuit school, Marquette. He was part of like this like gay lesbian alliance that was like just like part of a whisper network that like mm-hmm. our English teacher <laughs> headed up. But you know, but it wasn't like visible, right? No, you know? no. I, I I of course in my school had the one other. There's the one other gay guy, and in 2003, you knew who this was. What did he wear? Say it with me: girls' jeans, and that made you. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I was like a Little League playing, you know, super athlete who was a burgeoning drama club star. But a part like like girls jeans were a bridge too far. So like you mm-hmm. you took people like that as an opportunity to be, to be like, well, I'm not like that. I'm not effeminate in that way or something. I'm going to retain mm-hmm. something of the former identity I have since I'm not that. But like he was ultimately just like way braver and cooler than I was at the time. And I was not um, uh, adult enough to admit it he was the kind of person who was dating somebody older from another school you know maybe even mm-hmm. college or something anyway he, he 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 was everything i wasn't my outfit in high school was a brown suede jacket from the buckle of course i think i wore every day uh, excuse <laughs> um, me a, a buckle jacket was 40 bucks i would absolutely yes. buy one yeah. yes i i still have a buckle jacket that i'm like looking for that i lost from high school but i when i was in high school i was that gay like I was the one who was wearing girls jeans Mm. and I went to an all boys prep school and I thought I was so subversive because I went to Pacific Sunwear and bought girls khakis that were boot cut and wore them and no one knew and I was just like I'm so fabulous but I was that gay that people like well at least I'm not like that person like at least I'm not that effeminate which brings me to my one of my least favorite coming outs (laughs) which was when Lance Bass came out and was very much like, I'm a sag, I'm a straight acting gay. And and that I was like, oh, here we go with, with all of this. Wow, this, I forgot he said that. That's really yeah. crazy. I have never fully forgiven him for that. It's amazing that he said that lie. <laughs> I, know. I would say, uh, that, this is, I would say, that. bad journalism. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, can we fact check this? Imagine me being an interviewing last math. Yeah, I'm a straight acting gay. Are you, sis? <laughs> are you? <laughs> Ed- Edward R. Murrow, are you, sis? Yeah. Okay, I mean, <laughs> we you used to side-eye even the girls in middle school who were like, Lance Bass is my fave. You'd be like, baby, I don't think that's going to work out for you. <laughs> Truly. I remember when... 
when um, Topanga from Boy Meets World was dating Lance Bass. And mm. I was like, I thought she was supposed to be smart. <laughs> <laughs> And now Lance Bass owns all the acreage in West Hollywood. You can't go to a gay club without running into him or his husband. His actual quote from the interview is, I want people to take away from this that being gay is a norm, that the stereotypes are out of the window. I've met so many people like me that it's really encouraged me. I call them the sags, the straight acting gays, which is normal, (laughs) typical guys. I love to watch football and drink beer. Baby, Rock Hudson was do, more be- Rock Hudson was more believable when he got when he came out as having AIDS. Okay, yes. I would still think he was straight over you. <laughs> Where oh, is he watching God. football and drinking beer? Yes, I was like, this is also a queen can do that happily. Yeah, right. No kidding. I, I mean, obviously, he would not reiterate these sentiments today, but it is so funny. Yeah. Like that's just what I mean. Like that's only yeah. fourteen years ago, and that was like somehow an acceptable way to address. The act of being gay is so funny. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny now yeah. to me. <laughs> you know what I would love as a series? Interviewing gay celebrities about their whack coming out interviews from years ago. Being oh, like, yeah. how do you feel about them now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like ZY would do so, would be brilliant with that. Well, you know what? She has but enough. Yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> okay. True. She can go over on Showtime. Where she belongs. <laughs> Lance Bass will come to keep it, and we will grill him about this interview. Yes, he's oh, never coming to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, those faggots? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, you know, if we talk about least favorite coming out stories, one of the funniest ones to me was Luke Evans. Oh, right. Well, that was like a, he, he went way back in the closet, right? Yes. He was out talking about like a boyfriend like in an interview i think the advocate yeah mm-hmm. yes and then as soon as he was becoming a star he's back at the closet and now he's just like on instagram with his partner all the time right he's just shirtless in different countries <laughs> <laughs> it's a good life yeah that was so strange because not only was did he talk about it in an interview but it was an incredibly frank interview you know it, it, yeah. it like it gave you an insight into like his real personality and then later it felt like you didn't hear from that personality ever again. You know, you were waiting for that person to reemerge. And now you still can't tell me Luke Evans has a personality besides hot. No, that's it. That's it. Hot and rugged. Yes. He yes. is a sag. <laughs> <laughs> An important category. Yeah. Straight uh, acting gay. Oh, by the way, abbreviating straight acting gay, nothing gayer. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm a sag. Fuck you are. Wait, does does that, does does that make us gags? Right, yeah, gay, gay yeah. acting gays. No. See, the gag is I'm a gag. Uh, wait, wait, no, I've got an even better one. I'm a fag, faggy acting gay. A fag. It has fag in the abbreviation too, which is. Oh my god. Uh, I I tell you one thing. I don't think we'll be able to go into Rocco's again. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we were trying to. <laughs> Every once in a while, it's a good time. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> More a high tops revolver queen myself, but Ab- absolutely. Mm. Um, all right, but we're back. Keep it. <laughs> it- 
And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It Den <laughs> as our guest host this week. Or why don't you go? Um, guest host or guest ho? Just kidding. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. People contain multitudes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, um, a hag. So... Uh, ho acting gay. <laughs> I claim that. I claim that as my identity. Um, no, my keep it this week is Caitlyn Jenner telling the voters of California that they got what they deserved. Um, okay. Did she hit them with a car? <laughs> she tried. <laughs> she tried. She so hugely lost this recall, which we all knew was going to happen. Like, this was never... A serious thing. Um, and also, the voters of California clearly wanted Gavin Newsom to stay in office, and why wouldn't they? So I just thought it was this epic moment. And largely, and in general, I'm always, every time I see a photo of Caitlyn Jenner, every time I hear anything she has to say, I just do a, a, a small little keep it, like almost like a prayer, like a chant, a keep it, because I do not want it. I think the thing about her is she's had so much media presence and opportunity to speak and yet still does not have a single fan. No. There is nobody who's like... <laughs> no. Like, she, she can't get it right. Like, you know, she can't even get it one one-hundredth of right. And so she is weirdly like supposed to be caping for Republicans, yet they're like, what the fuck? We don't like you either. So it's no. just like this weird sitcom character who just is like bumblefuck every day in a new way, alienating people in a new way every day. So weird. It's so shocking. And the bots that, like, are on her side, that were on her side during the election, like, just misgender her. So, you know, like, who are you trying to have love you, girl? When you even said that Caitlyn Jenner was like, people of California got what they deserve, I forgot that half of it was even running. (laughs) By the end of the recall, it was like, save California from Larry Elder and the GOP. (laughs) Wasn't nobody thinking about Caitlyn Jenner. No! No. Does her family think about her? (laughs) No! No. No. The question I'm always asking is, who are her people? Like, who are your people that you are allowed to just go do these interviews and say the things you say? Like, why aren't they holding you back? One of the two most embarrassing gay celebs I've ever had a photo taken with that have been scrubbed from the internet. Oh, you you and your team got on that? Yes, her and Pete Buttigieg. (laughs) (laughs) We don't talk about the Pete Buttigieg era of my life. So, uh, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> my keep it this week is to Dear Evan Hansen, but I'm only bringing it up because it feels like nobody is talking about the actual things that are wrong with this movie, and they've invented this whole other set of curriculum that it failed at, which is not really true. For instance, everybody is now obsessed with, and I think I even said this at one point on Keep It, oh, well, he's a big psycho. Like, he... He's somebody who's like trying to gain clout through this fellow student's death, whatever, whatever. The movie is ultimately about that. I mean, maybe you, you, you might say it doesn't fully state how insane what he's doing is, but it really is ultimately about how what he's doing is monstrous. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I think it gets to that. What is so weird to me about this musical, this particular adaptation, is it goes for realism in every single way. Like, there's never a moment of this movie where you're taken away by the musical grandeur. And in fact, the movie's or the musical's signature song, Waving Through a Window, is treated as this throwaway right at the beginning of the show. You forget that it even happened. 
And the way they film it is he's just he's walking home. through a hallway. He's just walking through a hallway. It's like the most baffling choice because, and I think ultimately what's wrong with this adaptation is the direction. It needed mm-hmm. something of the unreal. It needed something that didn't, it felt so often like just a gray living room drama. Like, you know how the movie August Osage County felt like it had no momentum in it? It was mm-hmm. missing the thing of the, the oh, yes. play. That's what this oh, felt yes. like. I was just static in a room forgetting this was ever a dynamic experience. And I think that's the director's fault mainly. And also it's the director's fault for not reeling in Ben Platt's performance early in the movie where he is twitching like, I'm not kidding the fucking Joker. There's just no way he meant to do that on camera. There's no way he wanted that on camera looking like that. The opening of this film should have been like the opening of Get Over It with Ben Foster (laughs) walking with the... uh, the <laughs> box after he's dumped and vitamin C singing love will bring us together behind yes. him. Like I was so shocked in the <laughs> opening with waving through a window where like no one was dancing behind him. I was like, is no. this a musical? Right. It's like How? all the songs were in his head. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was so strange. But I will say the supporting performances in this movie, some of them are awesome. I thought Julianne doing a song I often hated from that musical was excellent. That's so big, so small. Yes. She slowed down the song a little bit and the movie was already running overtime at that moment. So the odds were stacked against her. I thought that was great. Caitlin Deaver, fabulous again. We loved her in Booksmart. Amy Adams was not good. Amy Adams, I thought was the worst actor in the movie. Yes. I haven't seen Hillbilly Elegy, but I'm like, is this your worst performance? I haven't seen Woman in the Window yet either. Oh my God. Well, the trilogy. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) rough year for Amy. Going off what you were saying though, um, the movie, I wanted more of the fantastic. Yeah, the less mm-hmm. realism because for me, it played everything straight and what this film really wanted to be was a melodrama. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when people talk mm-hmm. about how crazy he is, I'm like, it's what you'd get from like Rock Hudson um, like going after Jane Wyman and Magnificent Obsession, right? But if this were a brightly colored melodrama where you were inside his head and really felt that he was doing all of this because he was in love with this girl, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. would have made more sense. But it doesn't want to pick if he's doing it for this girl, if he's like mentally ill, you know, like the Lexapro talk, the stuff. I'm like, it's, tr- it's trying to do too much. Yeah. And also... Mm-hmm. I still don't know if it was trying to satirize elements of the film. Yeah. You know, where he's like becoming Mm -hmm. famous for talking about his best friend's suicide. It's like, are you saying that like people who do this kind of stuff like deserve to be satirized or are you just using it as a joke now? Yeah, it is confusing. Do you know who I think should have directed this? Danny Boyle. Somebody who really like throws in a ton of elements of like kind of mm-hmm. technological wonderment. You know how even mm-hmm. in like the movie Steve Jobs, there's a movie where he's like walking down a hallway and it's all like computer walls or something. Mm-hmm. It needed something like that, something spectacular to take us away from the rather drab nature of the subject matter because this is a drab movie. Yes. My keep it this week is to the like podcast true crime mystery that's been going on with Kelly Price's quote unquote disappearance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So it's I'd like to try and like break this down. She was the subject of a missing persons report filed in um, Georgia after last being seen at a police wellness check at her home on September 18th. And her sister talked about how like the family was worried for her, was trying to find her, and we knew that she had gotten COVID and. People were concerned that she was dead, um, that she was just missing somewhere and needed our help. 
that she was at Mr. Big's house. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> it came out the other day in an interview with TMZ uh, that she's not missing. She just had COVID and almost died. She said, at some point, they lost me and I died. I woke up days later and the first thing I remember is doctors asking me if I knew what year it was. And I'm like, so this story has gone from you were missing People are looking for you. You truly like every blo- like Joy Reid is like posting like, can we find out what's going on with Kelly Price people? <laughs> like the black community was in tatters, <laughs> and then it comes that she's just like, oh, I like nearly died from COVID, and when asked if she was vaccinated, ignored the question. Uh, always good news. So now the story has really turned into so you almost died because you didn't get vaccinated. Great. And now I'm just mad. <laughs> Yeah, tough. So, by the way, why would she be missing ever? Right. I mean, and the thing that also is part of the story is that, like, as happens with celebrities and particularly singers, mm-hmm. she is really close with her actual family. And so, like, there's a lot of things about her saying that, like, I don't really talk to my family. And so the the sister saying that she's missing is sort of like the sister trying to make the narrative about her and be involved, mm-hmm. maybe. But she's like... They think I'm missing because I'm not talking to them. I'm like, there's just, there's a lot going on here, and I need, where's Oliver Stone? (laughs) (laughs) Okay? We've seen Nixon. We've seen JFK. I need Price. (laughs) We need need to know what's going on. Had you even heard about this story, Lewis? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. I I mean, my my main news source for everything is Jack Hay's Twitter. So Oh, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Jack Hay, who, which, speaking of Price, is playing Paulina Price on Days of Our Lives currently and doing it excellently. As she always does. I just have to shout her out. One of the shames of our lives is that she has not been on this podcast, and she is a slay in every way. Like, I, I like mm-hmm. the thing she writes on Twitter. I'm like, why are you this funny? It's like so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't yeah. you tweet at her once to come on the show? She, she followed me when I was on Twitter. I know she follows you. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. No, I met her yeah. once and she was like, oh, Lewis from Twitter? So witty. And I was like, I can't believe you just said that. Anyway, she's not <laughs> been on here. Jack, hey, Harry, we love Gotta you. Gotta get her on. Keep it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it was, it, it's such a weird story. It's weird. It's baffling. And I kind of feel like maybe it wasted, like you know that black twitter is going to sleuth the whole situation and figure out everything and they're going to do it quickly and i'm like i just feel like you wasted black twitter's time wasted our <laughs> time okay i say r as if i'm still on it but you know like <laughs> black twitter has racist docs okay right. <laughs> yes okay yes. they've got women in parks who are harassing black people uh-huh. we've got karens to get fired they, they gotta find out where they work okay <laughs> come on <laughs> we're busy <laughs> I, I i like that all of uh, that black twitter is just the new number one ladies detective agency yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's bring back season two <laughs> <laughs> By the way, my friend just refreshed me on a on the one of the crazier stories of the Weinstein era, which is when Harvey Weinstein apparently promised Lupita Nyong'o a part on Number One Ladies Detective Agency, a show that had been canceled for years. Anyway, that is so fucking insane. <laughs> that if there's any funny parts of right the Harvey Weinstein uh, scandal. <laughs> It's that sad. truly was a baffling part of the Lu- Lupita Nyong'o story. Like he couldn't think of a show with like black people in it, and that was the first thing that came to mind or something. It was so, I, I, it's real mind-boggling. 
That's amazing. Yeah. I'm going to get you a part on The Wire. <laughs> You're going to love this show, The Jeffersons. Yeah. Uh, I mean, God. speaking of Harvey Weinstein, when we're watching the Tonys, there'd be no reason to thank him there. Um, but I was thinking about award speeches, and I was also thinking, like, damn, aren't we glad to not be in a awards season era where every speech would be, thank you, Harvey. Oh, God. God. Gwyneth, yeah, Judy Dench, whomever, yeah. Stop thanking people. (laughs) Stop thanking people who are like agents and producers and managers. I'm like, nobody want to hear that. And I get that it is a moment for them to be like shouted out. But like, I like when someone like Aaron Tveit shouts out like the woman who's managed him since he was a child, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. something like that. I'm like, if you're just naming random people at A24, can you save it for when you're backstage? Right. Oh, you mean they did their job? Great. Yeah. 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 I don't care. No, the the deference I find super baffling. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Yes. Uh, Anyway, thank you to Annalie Ashford for being here this week. Thank you to Den Michelle for joining us. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Yes. And uh, we'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston, and our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is me, Ira Madison III. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. And hey, stay safe out there. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com.